This is the ABC Weekend News. Here now, Bill Butel. Good evening. Today in the Canary Islands, 400 miles off the coast of Africa, there was the worst disaster in the history of aviation. At least 550 people died when two 747 jumbo jets, one a Pan Am flight from Los Angeles, the other a KLM flight, collided on the runway at Tenerife. The collision of the two jumbo jetliners produced fires and explosions which could be seen and heard for miles. Firemen were unable to contain the flames. Flames one survivor said did most of the damage. This is a special Tenerife Memorial edition of this program. You just heard a clip from ABC News on the evening of Sunday, March 27, 1977, when many Americans learned the tragic news, even though there was limited and fragmented information available in the hours after the disaster. Earlier that day, at 5.06 p.m. local time on the island of Tenerife in the Spanish Canary Islands off the Moroccan coast, a KLM-747 attempted to take off without clearance and collided with a Pan Am-747, which was taxiing on the same runway at the direction of air traffic control. The KLM-747, named the Rhine, was Flight 4805 under the command of Captain Jacob Veldhusen van Zanten, who was KLM's celebrated chief training pilot and was featured in the airline's advertising campaigns. The Pan Am 747, named Clipper Victor, made aviation history seven years before in 1970 by being the first 747 aircraft to carry passengers across the Atlantic and inaugurated the jumbo jet era. This aircraft was Flight 1736 under the command of Pan Am Captain Victor Grubbs with First Officer Robert Bragg and Flight Engineer George Warnes. A total of 583 people were killed in the accident, making it the worst disaster in aviation history to date. The KLM plane had 248 passengers and crew on board. The Pan Am plane had 396 passengers and crew on board. All 248 souls on board the KLM plane were killed. Of the 396 people on board the Pan Am plane, only 61 survived the accident. One of those survivors, Dorothy Kelly, a Pan Am flight attendant, will be joining us to tell her harrowing and heroic story of survival and helping those in need. But first, you're going to get an interesting look into the disaster by listening to news reports from all three networks from the day after the disaster, when the media was able to reach the remote island and piece together what happened. We are presenting all three network broadcasts on this program to give you a unique perspective of the historic event, along with eyewitness accounts. We caution that some of our listeners may find the graphic details in the news clips and our interview to be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. The following news clips are about 18 minutes before our interview with Pan Am flight attendant Dorothy Kelly. We'll start with a clip from ABC News from the next day, March 28, 1977. <laughs> This is the ABC Evening News with Harry Reisner and Barbara Walters. Good evening. Barbara is on vacation this week. When the airlines put the Boeing 747 into service seven years ago, insurance experts trying to set a reasonable rate predicted two disastrous crashes of the huge planes in the first 18 months of service. The crashes didn't happen. 
The 747 safety record has been outstanding. Palestinians burned one at Cairo airport and 76 died in two crashes. But it turned out to be one of the safest planes in history. Yesterday, the averages caught up with the 747. Two of them, both on charter flights, both on the ground, collided at Tenerife Airport in the Canary Islands. It was the worst disaster in aviation history. There are at least 578 dead, all of the 248 aboard the Dutch KLM plane taking off, and at least 330 of the 396 aboard a Pan American plane. Both planes were full of vacationers. Pan Am had brought most of its people from Los Angeles to the Spanish-owned Canary Islands. They were going to transfer to a ship for a Mediterranean cruise. Both planes were supposed to land at Las Palmas on another island. A bomb had gone off there in a store, and flights were diverted to Tenerife. Then, in a confusion to be sorted out, they collided on Tenerife's runway. The KLM plane taking off, the Pan Am plane taxiing. Any air traveler has wondered during some white-knuckled moments what it would be like. Spanish television cameras got some idea of what it looked like last night after the collision, and Mrs. Floyd Heck of Laguna Hills, California, tells what it felt like.
Rex Ellis is in Tenerife, and he talked there with two survivors. One of them was John Combs of Hawaii, whose wife, Louise, also had been listed as a survivor. We were the first row of seats behind first class, with no seats in front of us. Fortunately, there was a bulkhead there, and we were able to stand up. And uh, everything spilled out. Uh, torn metal and trays and just everything. You have no idea what, uh, what a pile of stuff it was. But it, it, it made a 20-foot uh, jump, literally. And um, I just said to my wife, I'm simply going to push you. She was reluctant to go at that jump. And I said, we'll just go. And uh, because then people were pushing the backs of us. And um, she went down and apparently got lost in the rubble. My son jumped, and as he jumped, there was another explosion. And I ended up in a hole in the plane. And... Um, then I felt um, fire on top of me, just completely surrounding me, and I just knew I was gone. And my lungs got full of um, smoke, and I was just about ready, you know, just ready to give up. I just thought, well, this is death. And, and then I, it seemed like it cleared. So I came to enough, I started flying up the side, and my son came back after me. And he saw my head, and he reached up and he grabbed my arms and pulled me out. And then he and my daughter-in-law dragged me to safety. Here's a clip from NBC News the day after the accident on March 28, 1977. This is NBC Nightly News, Monday, March 28th with John Chancellor and David Brinkley reporting from the NBC News Center in New York. Good evening. John Chancellor is off tonight. He'll be back tomorrow. In the horrible air crash in the Canary Islands, what is known now is that at least 578 people died. The worst ever. What is not known now is exactly what caused it to happen. Here on a diagram of the Tenerife Airport in the Canary Islands with some models, we will show you what facts we have been able to get at this hour. The two planes were parked here at the terminal. Normally, to roll to the end of the runway, they, they would have used this taxiing strip. But it was crowded with parked airplanes, and so they both were rolled out this way. KLM in front, Pan American behind it. Exactly how far, we don't know. KLM rolled down here, off into this little side place, down the taxiway to the end of the runway and sat there waiting to take off. Pan American was rolling down behind it. At about this point, the tower said to the Pan Am pilot, are you clear of the runway? He said no. At about this point, he saw the KLM plane charging toward him. Turn, he tried to turn into this ramp to avoid it. It was too late and they collided at that point with the result, as we say, 578 people dead. David Burrington is on the scene in the Canary Islands and has a report for us now. The airport here today still looked like a graveyard for airplanes. The lone runway cluttered with the broken remains of the two big jets. Several teams of investigators arrived to hear conflicting stories as to what went wrong. KLM experts from Holland 
said air traffic controllers had goofed, with the result that the two planes were on the same runway at the same time. Some Spanish officials, however, blamed the KLM pilot. Whatever the truth, it shouldn't be hard to figure out once tape recordings are analyzed of conversations between pilots and tower prior to the disaster. The situation was complicated by thick fog and heavy traffic just before the crash. The survivors, most of whom lost members so of their family in the crash, told what happened. A crash, it was a tremendous explosion. There was fire, there was gasoline spewing out, there was uh, smoke, the fumes were awful. But the whole cabin next to me was just completely gone. I realized I saw flames coming, so I figured, I saw my mom go, and I looked at my dad, and he told me to jump, so I just crawled out and jumped. Could you tell that a lot of people were not going to make it? it it's not something I thought about. You know, I was trying to get the immediate people around me out, and then I figured I should go. It, it, it wasn't frightening, you know, I wasn't frightened. It was, he kind of realized, well, wait a minute, it might blow, so I should go. But people were calm, they weren't really screaming or anything, no, and okay. you don't think about it. You just saw the flames, and it was time to go. Well, my first thought was, wait, the, the fire engines would be come out there. But then it got so bad where we were that, and we knew they weren't coming, that we had to get off. And I knew that I wasn't going to stay in there and burn up. And how does it feel to be a survivor in what is uh, the world's uh, largest air crash? It uh, feels great to be alive. I'd be lying if I said anything else. One final irony, a new international airport is now under construction on the other side of the island. Much bigger, more modern, better weather. There's general agreement that had it been in operation, the crash here would never have happened. David Burrington, NBC News on Tenerife Island. Let's take a listen to a clip from CBS News the day after the disaster on March 28, 1977. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. It still is not known exactly how many persons died in that airplane collision yesterday. The two airlines involved, Pan American and KLM Royal Dutch, count 576 victims, 328 of the 396 aboard the Pan Am plane, all 248, including four Americans aboard the KLM plane. But Spanish authorities at Tenerife Island off the Moroccan coast count four fewer victims. Among the survivors, all of them from the Pan Am plane, many are in serious or critical condition. We have a report from Bill McLaughlin on Tenerife Island. The investigation into the worst collision in aviation history was just getting underway here tonight. The wreckage of what used to be two 747 jumbo jets carrying over 600 people was strewn across 200 yards of runway much of which was melted from the intense heat of multiple explosions. Experts from Pan American, Royal Dutch KLM Airways, and the U.S. and Dutch governments arrived today to probe the debris and the causes behind the tragic accident. At this point, there seemed to be only two possibilities. Either the instructions of the Spanish air controller were wrong or unclear, or one of the pilots made a fatal error in the dense fog that enveloped the runway area. Most of the survivors had no clues as to the causes of the accident. Most of them were completely taken by surprise. Meanwhile, another type of investigation must be made. Three American pathologists are headed here to help identify victims. Not an easy task. 
report. 95% of the bodies are charred beyond recognition. Bill McLaughlin, CBS News on Tenerife in the Canary Islands. Most of the passengers aboard the Pan Am jet were from California, members of a charter group who were to have cruised the Mediterranean. Detailed information from the Canary Islands on what happened to the passengers was a long time coming, as Richard Wagner reports from Los Angeles. All through the night and all day, as investigators sifted the wreckage 6,000 miles away, hundreds of Californians waited and waited for news of friends, of families. The calls came slowly. Charles Amador got one of the first, his son John, a survivor, telling what happened. He looked up on the right window where he was seated, and um, he looked out the window and he saw this uh, KLM plane headed right for them. He um, knew that there was no way in the world that it, uh, could, the crash could be avoided because the plane was about a foot off of the ground and was headed, uh, he said uh, he estimated the speed around 200 miles an hour at that time. When they heard the crash, he said he was crawling over bodies and uh, people screaming and uh, quite confused, you know, those that were suffering. Another who survived, Joan Holt. She called her mother in San Diego. And I said, are you all right? She says, as far as I know, I'm all right. She was very nervous. And uh, I said, do you expect to continue on the trip? She says, oh, no, Mama. Says, so many people were killed. But she was alive. You must Thank be Thank God. Thank God. The community hardest hit by the tragedy is Leisure World, an affluent retirement village south of Los Angeles. 37 residents of Leisure World were on the Pan Am Charter. 27 of them are reported dead. 19,000 people live here, most of them retired with time and money for travel. Their reaction to the tragedy was shock and sorrow, and a few said they were thankful they had not chosen this particular trip to the Mediterranean. Two of the dead were Helen Peters and Helen Halderson, residents of Leisure World who were real estate agents here. I, I know that they are on the, in that group, and they're lovely ladies. They've sold a lot of property here in Leisure World, and, and so many people say, oh, I bought my home from her, and I bought my home from her. And uh, they're in grief over there right now, all through this building, the, the whole administration building. It was quite a shock to hear that there were so many from, from this uh, small community of 19,000. Tonight, for most of the relatives and friends of the passengers aboard Pan American Flight B-150, the agony of uncertainty and waiting is over. The next of kin have been notified. And all over the country, teletype machines are tapping out the long, long list of the dead. Richard Wagner, CBS News, Los Angeles. The White House announced this evening that President Carter has ordered a United States Air Force plane sent from West Germany to the Canary Islands to evacuate about 12 of the most seriously injured survivors of that crash. The Carter administration immediately sent a U.S. Air Force plane with medical personnel and burn specialists to assist and transport victims in critical condition back to the United States. Let's listen to a KLM spokesman navigate a difficult question from the Associated Press on March 30th, 1977, three days after the incident, many call the crash of the century. KLM has been informed by the Dutch team assisting in the investigations of the cause of the collision at Los Rodillos Airport that according to the voice recorder of the airport control tower, it appears that no explicit clearance for takeoff was given to the captain. It's inconceivable to KLM that the captain would have taken off 
if we'd known that clearance had not yet been given. In order to get a clear picture of the cockpit crew's proceedings, it will first be necessary to listen to the cockpit voice recorder of the KLM aircraft. It is possible that an explanation could be obtained from this, due to the fact that the highly specialized equipment necessary is not available it will not be possible to do this at Tenerife. As yet, the voice recorder, the cockpit voice recorder, is being held by the Spanish authorities. The Dutch investigation team considers the information gained up to now insufficient for any conclusions and will therefore continue its work in collaboration with the Spanish Commission and the American investigation team. Based on this statement, is it conceivable to you that even though your pilot was told that he was free to hold but not to proceed any further, he might have said, no, I have to take off? How do you explain this? This is a direct uh, conflict in the explanation of why this happened. It's, it's very clear-cut, the fact that he was told he was given clearance only to hold. He was not given clearance to take off, and if he did, it would have to be an error on his part, would it not? You are using words which are unfamiliar to me in the transcript that has been read to me of the recording, the word, the word hold is not being used. We have press reports in America, wire reports, that in fact that is the language used by the Spanish investigating committee that they said they gave your pilot permission to hold but not to take off. Prior to that there was a word which might stipulate, and I put it very carefully, which might be interpreted by crew that they were given clearance to take off. And I, that's all I'd like to say at this point in time. This is one side of the story. The other side might well have been on the cockpit voice recorder, the, the communication between the pilot and his co-pilot, and on the other hand, communication between the aircraft and the tower. By this time, it became clear that KLM Captain Van Zanten either intentionally took off due to arrogance and a lack of patience, or mistakenly thought he had clearance to take off due to garbled radio traffic. Either way, the KLM captain was clearly at fault for the disaster. Now to our interview with Dorothy Kelly, a Pan Am flight attendant who survived this terrible incident. Dorothy, I'd like to thank you for coming on this program. I know it's a difficult topic. Hi, I'm glad to be here with you, Tom. Let's talk about March 27th, 1977 in Tenerife. I know it's a very difficult memories, but uh, let's start there. Can you kind of give us a picture of what, how that day started? Uh, I understand that there was some diverted flights and then you ended up in Tenerife and uh, you and your passengers were on the tarmac for a while. Can you just tell us about how the day started? Oh, sure. Um, well, the flight for me started in um, at Kennedy Airport in New York in the evening, and it had uh, originated in California, and um, it was a 747, and the passengers were going on a Mediterranean cruise, and we were they were to pick up their cruise ship in the Canary Islands. So it started out uh, very normally. I reported to work. And uh, on 747s, Pan Am had two pursers, a junior purser and a senior purser. And that was just by um, how long you had been working. And uh, I was the junior purser. 
Uh, so the senior purser did most of the, the crew briefing pre-flight, before the flight, and she was French, uh, was very self-conscious about her French accent and asked me if I would work up front because that's where the announcements were made from, the front of the aircraft. And then we, after we uh, finished that flight, we were going to Paris where we were picking up, uh, I believe, a 707 flight back to New York. And she said she would feel much more comfortable making announcements on, on a much smaller airplane. Uh, I agreed and, um, of course, didn't know it at the time. But her French accent saved my life. And uh, so, anyway, we were uh, going to the Canary Islands. About It was an uneventful flight, busy. And just before we were to land, about 30 minutes, the captain, Captain Victor Grubbs, called me up to the cockpit and said that we were diverting to Los Rodeos Airport uh, at Tenerife. Um, these are the Canary Islands, which are off the west coast of Africa. And uh, that a... Um, there had been reports of terrorism at Las Palmas, which was my, which was the original destination, and there was a a terrorist movement that had uh, blown up a bomb at the airport. So all the planes were diverted to this uh, very small airport in Tenerife. So we landed there about thirty minutes later, I guess, and. Basically, things there was very little information. We were not allowed to disembark and go into the terminal because other aircraft had landed well before us, and the terminal, which was not very big, was full at the time. So uh, we were uh, told we had to stay on board, which was fine. Um, it was several hours later. Uh, there was a great deal of fog uh, because it was early morning and the fog had not burned off. And um, we just, it was busy because people were restless. They were anxious. They were afraid they were going to miss their uh, uh, their crews. And, of course, we couldn't give them any more information. We didn't have it. And we just uh, did the best we could with what food and drinks we had aboard at that point. Um, finally, after several hours, we were given permission to take off again. As I said, this was a very small airport, and there was only one runway, and the runway was also the taxiway. We had been parked next to a KLM 747 uh, called the Rhine. And they were given permission to taxi down uh, that runway first, um, which they did and uh, turned around at the opposite end in to wait for their uh, takeoff clearance. And um, at some point, we were given permission to taxi down towards that KLM 747 at the opposite end of this runway. And uh, for some reason, the ALM 
captain, uh, I had either misinterpreted or had decided to just take off. Uh, he probably misunderstood the um, the clearance and started his takeoff role while we were taxiing towards them. Uh, when our pilot saw this other 747, uh, they immediately tried to veer off the runway. And uh, as you can imagine, a 747 doesn't move very far, very fast. So we hadn't gotten much off that uh, taxiway when um, the KLM jet decided their only option of avoiding a head-on collision uh, was to take off. So the KLM pilot began uh, to rotate the aircraft and took off, and it didn't clear our aircraft and took off the top part of our airplane. And uh, it just um, fell down um, right behind us and um, actually just burned up. There were no survivors on that aircraft. <clears throat> so, uh, And you were in the first class section of the 747? I was in the first class section. Um, by the um, number one door on the right side. And I was talking to the flight attendant, Carla Johnson, who was working up there with me. And the um, galley attendant, Miguel, um, said to me it's just before we started the taxiway, he said, Dorothy, uh, you haven't had anything to eat or drink, and um, I, I think you should have something. And so he said, I've just made a fresh pot of coffee, and um, uh, do you want coffee? And I said, yes, I'd love a cup of coffee. And I said, black, please. And he said, no, you haven't eaten or had anything to sustain you in all these hours. I'm putting milk into it, and I hate milk and coffee. But he poured it in, and I took it, and I went back to uh, where my jump seat was next to the uh, right one door and uh, I would be seated next to Carla and we were at that point there were no regulations about being seated for uh, taxi which there are now uh, so we were standing there talking and we wouldn't have uh, um, gotten into our um, jump seat harness uh, before we got um, an announcement from the cockpit cockpit that uh, we were about to take off. And at some point, I just remember everything seemed to be moving in slow motion, and things were flying around. And I remember ducking, and um, I was really very confused. And uh, and then I, I just don't remember anything. And when I came to um, what apparently the um, research and the NTSB has was determined was that the uh, I was hit on the head uh, by a piece of the superstructure of the airplane and knocked unconscious, and f the floor gave out underneath me, and I fell down into the baggage compartment. Um, and they 
they know this from what their research of what the aircraft looked like and uh, what I w- people were able to tell them. And also because at the hospital <coughs> afterwards, uh, they found pieces, small pieces of the superstructure of the airplane. Uh, and there were also pieces, I had an apron on, and there were pieces in my pocket as well. But uh, I was hit on the head, and there some of this debris stuck in my head. And uh, they knew what this was because it was metal, and it had a green coat on it of paint or which was the uh, how the which was the anti corrosive cover they put uh, over the um, the skeleton of the aircraft as they're building it. So I I, I woke up sometime later. I, I was totally confused. I didn't know where I was. It was pitch black. Uh, there was no point of orientation. I didn't know whether I was up or down. I didn't know. Um, I could tell I was in a strange place, um, and I just started moving around, and then all of a sudden I saw a, a pinpoint of of light at, above my head, and I thought, ah, I have to climb toward that. That's the outside. So I was climbing and climbing and climbing, and, um, and this is the baggage section, so you can imagine it was very difficult. I ended up on the top of the uh, front of the aircraft, where the, uh, right behind the cockpit, which was, uh, um, it was either seating up there, in our case, it was used as a lounge area, and that would be on the upper deck of the 747. And the whole top of the airplane had taken off. Um, there were no people up there. And it was just like bare floor and no seats. Nothing was left. I, I saw a couple of people milling around on some. Uh, I couldn't figure out how to get into back into the airplane and uh, try to get these people back down. And um, finally, I just said, we've got to jump. I remember the last person kept wandering off, and it was a man, and um, finally we were the only ones left up there. And I grabbed him, and I said, we've got to go now. And I remember looking down, and it um, it was it's a, quite far down because the aircraft was still upright. And uh, I remember saying at my hearing that it looked like... Um, I felt like I was jumping off the second story of my house. And they said, that's exactly right. That's exactly how far it would be. Um, so anyway, I had, uh, that point I had lost my shoes. And I thought, saw all this broken metal down below. And I kept thinking, oh my God, we're going to kill ourselves jumping, trying to avoid all that metal. And, um, but we did. We had to jump. We had no alternative, and uh, fortunately, we both cleared it. And um, I started immediately shouting and, and um, trying to get the people away from the aircraft, which is, um, as any flight attendant will tell you, is uh, 
um, a main point in all of our training sessions, get away from the aircraft as soon as possible. And um, I, so I started running, and I thought I'd better get out and see uh, what's going on here. And I saw the other crew, surviving crew members. There were three other flight attendants. So I ran. They were all in a um, in a group, standing back uh, on the, the grass. And I ran over to them. And at that point, I was having trouble seeing. And um, I was wiping my eyes, and I saw it was blood pouring down um, into my eyes and congealing. And um, I ran up to them and I said, how bad is this um, cut in my head? And they said, it isn't bad. It's just bleeding a lot. Um, so I started, I turned around and I started running back. And they said, don't go back, Dorothy. Don't go back. It's not safe. And um, but I, I continued and I went back. And so that started my my work uh getting people, trying to convince people to uh, not mill around, looking, talking to each other, um, get them as far away as possible. I knew there would be, I felt like there would be other explosions and more fire. We were, um, there was fire all around. And we had just refueled. And the only place people were able to get out of the aircraft at that point was over the uh, left wing, and um, and the wings are what hold the fuel. And there was one, the inboard engine on that side was still running, and um, the as I found out afterwards, the pilots were not able to cut it, the power because the cables had been severed. So this engine just kept running and running, and I saw it was it was just starting to go faster and faster. And um, I thought, this is just this is going to blow up at any minute and just set that whole wing on fire. And about that time, I, I noticed something white underneath the front part of the airplane where I had jumped down from. And um, I, I think that's where, uh, when I jumped off the aircraft, that's where I hurt my arm. I got closer and I knew I saw it was one of the pilots and he was lying on the ground and it was the captain. And I said, um, captain, we have to get out of here. Can you move? Uh, are your legs broken? And he said, I don't know. It just feels so cool here in the grass. I want to stay. I said, no, we have to get out. And this was right in the middle of the, uh, the under, uh, underneath the front part of the airplane. And so I, I grabbed him and I turned him over and I pulled him under his arms and uh, ran backwards with him to try to get a safe distance. And at that point, the inboard engine blew up and set, sent all this red hot, white hot metal flying around, and I thought, oh, God, we're not going to survive this, and after all of that, and uh, we did. I finally, we ducked all that debris and got around it, and I got him to a safe place away from the 
airplane on the grass. And I, uh, I said, just stay here and I'll get back to you. And then I ran back to um, that part of the airplane and it was uh, just encouraging people to get jumped down and pulling more people away that had jumped off. Um, I mean, even that part of the airplane off the wing, which you can slide down, is still quite a distance from the ground. And these were all retired people. Most of them were retired people or and their families, uh, but all adults. Um, so a lot of these people were um, senior citizens and um, not used to jumping off wings of aircraft. Um, so I was able to get several people away. Finally, I, I did see one woman underneath that wing and was able to pull her back. Um, she became a lifelong friend of mine, and um, I, I pulled her back in the same way. And she had, she when she jumped off the wing, uh, she fell, and people jumped on top of her. And as a result, she had a broken hip and um, a completely smashed foot and, um, I, I believe, a broken leg as well. Anyway, I, I said to her, I will get back to you. Now, this went on. I, I, I don't remember how long that, that it was, but I remember at one point looking at my watch and seeing that it was still um, moving and um, I was thinking, uh, wow, after all of that and my watch is still working, uh, I wish I could remember the name of the watch because it would be a good advertisement for that company. Anyway, I ran back and continued with uh, getting as many people as possible. Um, people were uh, knocking on the windows and uh kept motioning to them to go back or to where there was an obviously an opening over the left wing. Um, the doors were unusable because at this point the, um, the whole aircraft had, uh, I guess, had been bent in a way that um, the, the doors were not usable. So certainly slides were not usable, which would be the normal emergency exit. This continued until uh, there were just no more people coming out. So um, Bob and I continued to um, uh, cars and ambulances started to arrive. Uh, and um, we uh, just kept um, getting as many people as we could into these um, cars and vans and, and they would go off to a local hospital. And Bob is the first officer? Bob was the first officer, yes. Um, so finally, when uh, all of there were no more people, uh, there was only um, this lady, uh, Beth Moore, who I said was had become would become a friend of mine, um, and she was still on the grass, and there was this um, man who was. Uh, walking around, and his, all of his clothes were torn. His pants were only held on um, 
by belt loops and a belt, but the rest of his clothes had been completely torn off. And um, at this point there, so uh, I, Bob and I got together and said, let's go. There are no more people that we can help here except these few people that were left. And um, let's walk around the other side of the airplane and let's make sure there's nobody over there. Um, so we did. We walked around the airplane and came back. And at that point, a van had pulled up and um, uh, some of the airport workers came out. And well, what I wanted to say was at this point, there was not uh, any fire control. And I never did see a fire truck. Some of the airport workers helped me get um, this lady, uh, at, and she she never screamed, but she was obviously in pain and kept mo- moaning. And oh, and I could see by her face she was in terrible. Uh, so I just assumed the worst that um, there were broken bones. And I said, get her as flat as you can and put her across the middle seats of this van. And she can't sit up. Said you have to lay her down. And at that point, I grabbed this other man uh, who had been walking around with his clothes in tatters, and put him into the front seat of the van. And um, so, and at that point, Bob said, "Okay, I will get um, whoever's left into the next." Uh, our transportation uh, that was available and and uh, uh, meets you at the hospital. We were satisfied that absolutely no one else could get out at that point or would get out. Um, at this point, you're still bleeding and probably in shock, correct? Oh, yeah. But the adrenaline had set in. And when I say adrenaline, it didn't subside until later that night. It it really does uh, it does work and do it it does its job. Uh, by the way, Life Magazine has a um, I believe it was the centerfold uh, of me leaning over Beth and this man and you can see there's just shreds of uh, clothing left on his body uh, and fortunately he was facing backwards. In the, in the photograph, and uh, I, I don't know whoever had um, the presence of mind to take photographs. I mean, these were all tourists, and every tourist in those days had a camera. Uh, there were no cell phones with cameras. And so, um, fortunately, some people, while they were waiting, took pictures, and that otherwise there would be no photographs of this at all, this activity. We are going to take a short break from Dorothy's interview for a moment and discuss the other Pan Am crew members. There were a total of 16 Pan Am employees on board Clipper Victor. Nine were killed in the crash, and nine survived. Of those killed was galley attendant Miguel, who was responsible for the first-class lounge on the upper deck. Dorothy mentioned Miguel earlier as the gentleman that made her a cup of coffee just before the crash. She sadly remembers him climbing the spiral staircase in the moments just before the horrible accident. It is important and appropriate to say the names of each of the Pan Am crew members that died on that terrible day in March 1977 on Tenerife Island. 
We remember them and all of the other KLM and Pan Am victims of this terrible tragedy. Linda Frere, a veteran Pan Am flight attendant and now co-founder and board chair of the Pan Am Museum Foundation, will read the names. We remember them. Francois Colbert de Beaulieu Greenbaum, purser. And the flight attendants. Marie Isay. Marilyn Luker. Christine Ekelund. Saichiko Hirano. Miguel Torrech Per. Carol Thomas. Esel Sharp Buck. Luisa Garcia Flood. Let's take a listen to a 1996 interview with Robert Bragg from the documentary program called Black Box in the UK and Survival in the Sky in the United States. Unfortunately, Captain Bragg passed away in 2017 at the age of 79. The co-pilot on the Pan Am jumbo was Bob Bragg. It's the first time he's been back to Los Rodeos since that Sunday in 1977. Twenty years later, bits of his plane still lie all around. When we landed here, the entire ramp was completely and totally congested. There were probably 20 to 30 airplanes that had also diverted and were parked here, which necessitated us having to go way down to the end here and park. The Dutch pilot, Captain Van Zanten, was getting restless too. His plane was parked alongside the Pan Am, and the American pilots could hear him constantly on the radio, anxious to be on his way before he ran out of flying hours. He was very irritated about the situation, as I'm sure all of us were, because most of us had uh, been flying all night long, and uh, we were all anxious to get to our destination. Uh, Basically, about that time, he decided to start refueling. Concurrent with that, they opened up the airport at Las Palmas. So the engineer and I got out and walked and measured the wingtip clearance between the KLM 747 and our 747. And we found out that we were about 12 feet short of being able to get around him and taxi out. So we had to wait for the KLM airplane to refuel. As the Pan Am entered the runway, clouds began to roll down from the surrounding hills. The American pilots soon found themselves inching through the dense mist, looking for their turnoff. By now, the KLM pilot had already reached the far end, turned, and was anxious to be on his way. The tower called us and asked were we off the runway, and I said, negative, we're still on the runway, but we will report clear of the runway. We looked up and we saw the KLM airplane's lights, uh, and I immediately saw the lights shaking, and I said, I think he's moving. And uh, then I, it was very obvious that he was moving. So I started yelling, get off, get off. And the captain turned the airplane, went to full power on the throttles. As we were turning, I looked back out of the right window and uh, couldn't believe it that he was doing what he was doing. And I'll never forget, I saw the rotating beacon uh, underneath the belly of the airplane. I closed my eyes and ducked. I didn't even think he'd done us any damage. It was very little noise, uh, very little shaking or anything. When I looked up, it was obvious that he had done us a lot of damage. Uh, The windows were completely gone. 
I looked back to the right, the right wing was on fire. I looked back to the left and uh, the entire lounge, up, upper lounge, upper deck lounge was gone. We had 28 people up there and there was nothing left. Uh, it looked like someone had taken a big knife and just sliced the entire top of the airplane off. I could see all the way to the tail of the airplane. So I reached down to try to shut off the engines with the start levers, which controls the fuel to the engines. Uh, that didn't do any good. Obviously, all the controls were severed. Then I reached up to get the fire control handles, which is up top, which shuts the engines down. And that's when I discovered that the top of the cockpit was gone. I looked around. There was no side of the cockpit left. So I stood up and elected to jump over the side, which was about 48 feet. Now let's hear from Pan Am flight attendants Joan Jackson and Suzanne Donovan from a 2016 program called Mayday Air Disaster. Note that Suzanne speaks first, followed by Joan and then Bob Bragg. Yeah, in normal circumstances, you're supposed to wait for a command, but it was clear and you didn't need to wait for a command in this situation. There was fire, and I shouted to Suzanne, fire on the wing. She ran back to my exit and saw Suzanne standing there, getting ready to open the door, and just saw the door crumple like cheap tinfoil. And I thought, oh my God, we're trapped. I was staring at the door, and I yelled, unfasten your seatbelts, remove your shoes, leave everything, come this way. And as I stared at the door, a jagged hole seemed to open up in the roof over the door. And the next thing I knew, I was outside that. I, I don't know how I got out there. Joan was standing there yelling, Suzanne, take my hand. And I was standing above the level of the door on fuselage rubble pieces. And I leaned down and said to Suzanne, give me your hand. She grabbed me out with one hand. I mean, I don't know how she lifted me. And then we were standing up on top of the, almost on top of this airplane. And I thought, it's really a long ways down. If we jump, we're going to break our legs. We were on debris. It was like ice flows, big chunks of fuselage kind of moving all around. The engines were starting to disintegrate already. We could hear them disintegrating and throwing metal. I lost Joan's hand very quickly. So I jumped, and it was about, it seemed like the leap from a second-story building. The captain, he elected to jump down in the first-class section of the airplane, and when he hit the first-class floor, the floor collapsed, and he fell on down into the cargo area. It was so hot that the oxygen bottles exploded and burned him very badly, as a matter of fact. It's hard to call what we did an evacuation. It just seemed to be people got out where holes were provided. It all seemed a matter of total luck. The entire left wing of the airplane was covered with passengers. And it turned out there were probably 45 to 50 passengers out on that wing. In the debris, you knew there were trapped passengers and people. And there was absolutely nothing you could do to help because the airplane was collapsing in on people. Only one door was opened by a crew member, and that was one of the black flight attendants who did that. And she lost her life when the engine disintegrated and debris hit her. And I thought if we could just walk around to the other side of the plane, we would find all of the passengers and our other fellow crew members, which of course wasn't the case. When I got out on the ground, I could hear people screaming and yelling and all. Within about five minutes, you heard absolutely nothing. 
There was no noise at all, just the air, the airplane burning. I asked one of our medical directors later on what had caused that, and he said that when you have a fire that hot and that much of a fire, it consumes all of the oxygen in there, and people basically suffocate. I felt so responsible because I couldn't take care of my passengers and so helpless in looking back and knowing that there's nothing you can do. You can't get back in the aircraft. There's no way to get in it, and it's all on fire. Here's another clip, this time from a 2011 program called Aircraft Confidential. So I went up and I started yelling at them for jump, and they did. Everybody just came straight off and uh, hitting a large group on the ground. One man, I noticed, grabbed uh, a lady by the ankle and just started running as fast as he could. Turned out later that uh, the lady that was being drugged across the ground was the wife of the man that was pulling her. And when she hit, all of the other people hit on front of, on top of her and broke her back, both arms and both legs. No one got out of the airplane past row 33. Reason for that was when KLM hit us, he severed his landing gear into our airplane. Matter of fact, they found his landing gear, uh, the main landing gear, in our wreckage. And I think that was our first thought. That was our first thought. It was a bomb. And we were astonished when someone pointed out that there was another plane down the runway on fire. We had no idea. In the chaos of the aftermath, rescue workers never made it to the Pan Am site in time to aid injured survivors. I recall walking around to the passengers who were on the ground who had been able to evacuate, who were clearly injured, and trying to lean down and reassure them, I'd say, don't worry, the ambulances are coming, help is on the way, the emergency equipment will be here soon. And meanwhile, we never saw any emergency equipment. We never saw ambulances or fire trucks. What had happened was, when KLM hit us, he sailed his landing gear and exploded and hit 1,500 feet down the runway. His site was closer to the tower than ours was. The tower called both of us and couldn't get any return communication. And about the same time, a airplane in the holding pattern right above the airport called the tower and said that he saw fire and wreckage on his runway. The fire trucks and ambulances come out and they get to KLM first. So this is why no one came out to our site. About that time, the center fuel tank of the airplane, which is located uh, right under the uh, wing as it joins the fuselage down in that area, the center fuel tank exploded and shot a flame probably two or three hundred feet up into the air. It strikes me as very ironic that if there was fire equipment there uh, trying to put out the fire at KLM, if only they'd known there were potential survivors at our plane that if they'd been able to get there, it might have helped. Here's our final clip from the 2016 May Day Air Disaster Program talking about how victims were taken to hospitals. It was personal vehicles, cars and trucks that seemed to come onto the grass and gather up people. About 75% of our surviving passengers got to the hospital in taxi cabs. 
Now back to our interview with Dorothy Kelly, telling her riveting and heroic story of survival and helping those in need. At this point in her story, she and First Officer Bragg were disappointingly satisfied there was no one else that could be helped, and it was time to leave the crash site. Dorothy was accompanying the last two remaining injured passengers to the hospital in an airport van. Anyway, we took off at breakneck speed, and um, his driver was uh, doing his best to get to a hospital as fast as possible and kept throwing on the brakes. And so uh, I ended up um, on the floor holding this woman on the seat with one arm, and my other arm was around the neck of the man sitting in the front seat trying to keep him from falling forward. Uh, this is all pre-seatbelt uh, days. The first hospital we went to, uh, we couldn't stay. They said there was no more room. They were inundated. So we took off again and had to go to another hospital uh, where the, we were able to stay. And uh, so I, I got out of the van, and uh, p- people did rush out. I said, we need a... Um, Uh, a stretcher for this person, this woman. And I grabbed this man who was in the front and directed him down the corridor into the, this was at the emergency room uh, section of this hospital and um, saw to it that that, uh, uh, Beth got onto a stretcher, uh, which happened very quickly. And she kept saying, don't leave me, don't leave me. And I said, I won't. But I have to see about other things here, and I will come and check on you, uh, which I did all through the next few hours at the hospital. They wanted me to sit down, and they said they would get to me. Now, all of this was in Spanish. I wasn't fluent in Spanish, but I certainly spoke enough to be able to understand and and try to get my point across at times. I kept saying to whoever wanted me to just sit there and be quiet, I said, I'm a stewardess. I have uh, medical training. I can help. I can help. I'm a stewardess. At that point, we were not flight attendants yet. So I I was able to help. The nurses kept giving me chores and um, different things to do. I remember at one point, um, a doctor came by and he said, come with me. And we went into a nearly dark room and there were, uh, I think, four or five people in there all laying down and they were all burn victims. And he said, uh, these are all uh, people who have been burned very badly. We have to get, um, take their clothes off and pull as much skin as you can off them. And... Um, at this point, these people had been burned very badly, and there were just festoons of skin hanging off their bodies. And My God. Uh, yeah. And um, I can remember pulling, uh, trying, and of course, the, the uh, I found out afterwards the medical staff had not um, given these people uh, much medication because they needed to know about uh, their medical history before they could medicate or do something or treat them. Uh, Because, again, I said most of these were uh, senior citizens and um, more than likely to have some uh, medical issues. So 
they they couldn't heavily sedate these people. And um, I can just remember the calm of these people. And, of course, they were in terrible shock. And I worked there for a long time doing this and trying to end. Uh, um, I had a pair of, a big pair of scissors to cut the clothing and um, and then cut some of the skin off. And I, at one point, um, I can remember uh, the doctor calling me and this um, woman had a, um, a, a gash in her head, and all of a sudden it started bleeding, gushing out of her head. Um, so he tossed me a, a wad of bandages and said, just hold it as tight as you can. And um, and that didn't stop the bleeding, and I, I called him again, and he said, uh, he took a small pit pair of scissors and um, just jammed it into her head and he said, now twist this and hold it. And it was a very primitive tourniquet, but the best he could do at that point, I guess. And um, it did eventually stop the, the blood flow. Uh, but this is the kind of thing I was under, uh, working the conditions I was working in. Let's talk about you for a second during all of this. Um, are you on uh, on automatic right now? Do you like understand what's happening and what are you feeling and thinking right now? Oh yeah, I understood what had happened, but I thought the aircraft had been bombed mm. because of the situation at um, the at uh, Las Palmas, where we were originally supposed to land. And I thought somehow these terrorists had um, uh, gotten to other airports. And uh, I didn't know. I had no way of knowing that uh, at that point that, that it was another airplane that had caused damage and not a bomb. Until I got to the, the hospital and um, I got together with the, the other crew members and, and uh, we were able to piece some stuff together. I, I was just in, um, as I said, on um, high gear, uh, adrenaline mode. That's the only way I can describe it. And your training kicked in? My training kicked in immediately. And I can't say enough for, um, especially during this last two years, we've seen a lot on television of, of uh, problems with passengers on aircraft who object to uh, just a simple thing like wearing a mask. Um, they can't even follow directions um, that far. And uh, I, I just look back at, at our training, and um, I don't think flight attendants were ever accepted for uh, the reason we are on board, which is safety. We are, we're not originally on board to, to uh, serve passengers drinks and meals and look nice. It was for safety that uh, we were originally uh, and always on board. And that is a federally mandated uh, regulation. And the federal government uh, tells airlines how many flight attendants should 
uh, the minimum number of flight attendants per seat. Um, uh, I believe that's how it's allocated, the number of seats. Uh, I don't believe we were ever accepted. So um, that's the downside of being a flight attendant. So you're at the hospital. You just survived this terrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. You probably still need medical attention yourself, and you're kicked into do. automatic. Uh, your training kicks in, and you are helping this overwhelmed hospital. When mm-hmm. did you finally stop and let someone help you? Um, at one point, uh, after I finished in this room with the burn patients, uh, I was directed by somebody, a nurse or a doctor came to me, I believe it was a nurse, and said, uh, the rest of the crew were all in uh, a separate room. And um, so she brought me in there and she said, we have to give you an inoculation. And so uh, that's where I finally met up with the rest of the crew who were all seated in this room. So she gave us all a shot. And then uh, I went out again, left that room, went back. And this nurse said to me, I need help uh, with English. And she handed me a roll of tape and a scissor and said, I need you to identify as many of these people as possible. And she directed me towards the worst at first, because in case they um, uh, fell into unconsciousness, they wouldn't know anything about them. They wouldn't know their name or medical history. And she said, just get as much information as you can and jot it down and and, um, slap this piece of tape on them. And so I did that for a while. And that's when I finally, I first realized that I was hurt, um, that my arm was hurt because I'm left-handed and... Um, I found it was difficult, more and more difficult to write on this tape where I was labeling these people. And I had a lot of trouble. I I ran back to to the room where the crew was and I said, I need help out here. And Carla got up and came out and said, um, I said, Carla, I could use you. I can't write anymore. Um, So I went around uh, and got and so we went around to all these people and, and finished that the uh, information, all the information we could get from them and, and labeled them. And it was at, at that point that um, I, a, a, a nurse came up to me and said, uh, by the now everybody knew my name and said, Dorothy, okay, it's now, now it's your turn. And I said, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. I just have a cut on my head. And she said, no, you're not fine. So they rolled up my sleeve. I said, my arm is hurting. And that's when they rolled up. I had long sleeves on and um, they rolled up my arm and there was a bone sticking out. And uh, so they immediately um, got that uh, fixed up and plastered and um, wrapped it up around tight around my neck, uh, which drove me crazy. Um, so you did. You helped all of these people mm-hmm. for however amount of time. It was about three hours um, uh, that I I worked at the hospital. Um, as I said, my my watch never stopped. And during all this time, you have a broken arm with a bone sticking out. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. 
Well, I had so much blood all over me from what I was doing and from my head wound. So uh, after they fixed the um, the arm, they said, "I'm going to we have we're going to send you up to radiology because we have to find out what's wrong with your head." Um, and they they did put some stitches into my head and stopped the bleeding. And um, but it had mostly congealed by then the blood. And uh, as you know, head wounds bleed a lot, so it didn't really concern me. My head, I said. I have a head wound. It's going to bleed a lot. Um, so anyway, they put me in a wheelchair and wheeled me up to radiology. And um, I saw that um, Beth Moore was in the room where next to where they put me. And I can remember her uh, being there and her hearing her scream, just outrageous screams. And they were resetting her hip, and I just I can't imagine what kind of pain that that would cause. Um, so I immediately jumped up out of the wheelchair, and somebody grabbed me and said, "No, no, you can't go in there. You can't go in." I said, "I know her, and I want to be with her." And so um, anyway, all during this time while I was downstairs in the emergency area. Um, I kept trying to speak to as many people as I could in English because all they heard all around them was Spanish. And um, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, these people must be so confused. And uh, they were inquiring about their relatives and people they were with and where were they and how were they and uh, where were they and what was going to happen to them. So I tried to just stay calm and speak to as many people as possible in English. And I remember that distinctly, that I thought, this is what I would like to have if I were in this situation. And um, a friendly American voice. Uh, and so I would know what's going on. Because a lot of the staff didn't speak much English. Uh, well, anyway, so they x-rayed me and they found out that um, I, I had a... a a skull fracture. And um, so uh, I, I, I was wheeled back to the emergency room. And when I arrived there, the rest of the crew were leaving and going to a hotel. Um, and um, except for uh, Bob Bragg, who stayed in the hospital, he had a broken ankle. And, of course, the captain. But um, the rest of the crew were going to a hotel. And they said, come on, Dorothy, we're going to the hotel. And I, so I got up out of the wheelchair, and some doctor came along that I had been working with. And um, he said, no, Dorothy, you, you can't go. You have to stay. We need, uh, we need you for observation um, because of your head injury. And you can't go uh, with the crew. So Carla felt sorry for me, and she said, Dorothy, I'll stay with you. And so she did stay with me during my um, the next few days when uh, uh, we were at the hospital. And um, so after that, I uh, was wheeled up to, uh, they had evacuated the maternity ward and put all of these um, people up on the same ward, on the same floor. 
they had put Carla uh, in a separate room. They were almost all private rooms. And uh, some nurse came along, and she felt sorry for me. And she said, okay, she said, I have a plan. And uh, she left the room, and she came back wheeling a bed and said, I'm going to put your friend in the room with you. And so Carla and I were able to share a room, which was um, very good uh, therapy, I guess, for both of us, (laughs) especially for me. Um, because I had somebody to share this with and talk about it, uh, because there was no such thing as fatigue setting in, and the adrenaline was still rushing. And um, when did the when did the gravity of the situation hit you? That that night, um, this nurse finally said, "I'm going to bring. You haven't had anything to eat. I'm sure you're hungry." And she brought us a tray of of sandwiches and hot chocolate and fresh oranges. And um, from then on, I think I began to relax and unwind, and we started talking and talking and talking. And we talked most of the night. And I can remember um, we both kept going to the bathroom. And I can remember at one, which was unusual, and I can remember at one point Carla saying to me, I guess that's what's called scaring the shit out of you. (laughs) And uh, so we were able to laugh over that. And at that point, I realized that any motion of my muscles in my face or head was excruciatingly painful. By the next morning, I didn't recognize myself in the mirror. Uh, My face was so swollen. My eyes were um, nearly shut and... um, The bruising, I had two huge black eyes and bruising all over my face. And um, it it was just astonishing to look in the mirror and not recognize yourself. I would never, if I had looked at a lineup of people, I would never have said, that's me. That's how badly my face looked uh, or how bad my face looked. but anyway, it was during that night that we, we started to unwind and discuss what had happened. What was Captain Grubb's condition? Uh, he, was, he was badly burned. And uh, I, I believe both of his arms were um, just bandaged up so that, um, I mean, totally bandaged where you couldn't use your fingers. Um, but uh, the next day, Carla and I said, Okay, Dad, we have to. We can't just sit here in bed. Uh, and uh, these are still our passengers. Let's find out what's going on. And um, so I went out and I said, you know, we should visit Captain Grubbs first because he must be feeling just terrible, thinking he killed all these people. And we have to let him know it wasn't his fault. We did. We visited Captain Grubbs' room first and were able to talk with him. He was coherent. At that point, uh, Bob Bragg was there, and the captain, and Carla and I, and we pieced together, basically. We found out what we could from the pilot's point of view and pieced together what had happened. And um, anyway, he, he, was, um, he was very badly burned. And I can remember looking at him and thinking, they have done all of these treatments on his body, and his lips were cracked to the point where they were... Uh, bleeding. 
I, I, they've done all of this work on him, and he's in a hospital, and nobody thought to put something on his lips. So I went back to my room, and I, I always had a chapstick in my clothing. And uh, I got my chapstick, and I put chapstick on his lips. And he said, oh, I was waiting for somebody to do something like that. That became my my uh, my chore for the next few days. Anyway, the crew got together for meals. The food in the hospital was wonderful, uh, which really surprised all of us. And um, Bob Bragg was given the job to cut up my meat, my food, because I couldn't cut my food. And um, I just kept complaining about how tight this was around my neck. Um, they had tied up my arms, so I was absolutely miserable. At some point, uh, and we went around, uh, Bob and Carl and I, and we talked to uh, whatever people we could get into and um, who were alert and um, awake, and we got to know people on a first-name basis. I think that 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 really, uh, I think they really appreciated that there was an American that they could talk to and uh, understand because, as I said, there was just Spanish around them all, all over, all the time. Very few of the, of the, the uh, staff spoke uh, English, or if they did, it was, wasn't fluent English. And then I can remember uh, the next night, in the middle of the night, a nurse came in and she said, Dorothy, your father's on the phone. And I can remember thinking, my father? I haven't heard from my father in years. I don't even know where he is. Um, so I got up, and she got me all dressed up in a robe, and it tied the robe around me uh, for modesty's sake, and brought me out to the desk at the, in the hallway. And this man said to me, I'm so sorry uh, that I had to bother you. And um, it turned out he was a reporter from the Boston Globe. Oh, no. And I just lit into him, and uh, I, I gave him uh, some not very nice thoughts that I had. And, and well-deserved. He deserved every bit of it. Uh, calling in the middle of the night, he was well aware of a time zone change, well aware of the fact that I, if I was in the hospital, there was something wrong with me. And uh, I, I just had no time for him, and, and I gave him a piece of my mind. And just terrible. I hope he's never forgotten it. Yeah, I hope. I yes, hope it does. was. Yeah, and as a result, that at that point, uh, the media started arriving from Europe and from America, and they got into the hospital. And then, when they were stopped coming in, uh, they got um, they dressed like doctors and nurses and put on white coats and jackets and and um, posed as, as medical staff. Wow. Um, and it was got so bad that the nurses finally put quarantine signs on the crew rooms um, so they wouldn't come in and bother us. Mm -hmm. Wow. So anyway, the days passed, and finally, um, three days later, a uh, representative from Pan Am, <clears throat> uh, from my department, arrived. And um, Jeff Grindler, who was the vice president of the department that would handle um, 
uh, media coverage and publicity and um, such for our, for the airline. So that was my, and we have remained friends through the years. They were able to get a medevac plane to carry the passenger the, the, from the hospital to um, hospitals in the States. And um, time was of the essence because burns have to be dealt with correctly uh, from the very beginning. And, and uh, they were, the people with the worst burns were sent to a burn center in Texas. And I spoke with people there uh, for several months afterwards while they were patients there. Their treatment uh, is is just god awful. I can't imagine uh, having going to have to go through this treatment every day. It's so painful. I I I don't know how burn treatment has changed since then, but I'm sure a lot of it is still the same. Uh, anyway, they uh, they were able to arrange for this military plane to evacuate these people, but then they ran into problem because nobody had passports and the government required passports for to leave the country so somehow uh Jeff and the powers that be got together and worked out a solution and they were able to arrange for these people to be taken back to the states and i can remember Carla and i standing and I thought I would be going back to the hotel uh, because the crew was not going back because we had to be interviewed by the NTSB and the FAA and, um, of course, Pan Am management team that they sent. That was all going to take place at the at the hotel. So Carl and I watched from the fourth floor window where we were and we could see. And when they brought Captain Grubbs out on a stretcher, um, the uh, these people just surrounded him, and we could see that some of them couldn't get close enough, and they stuck microphones on extension poles right up to his face while he was being wheeled out to transportation to take him to this aircraft. Um, and I thought these these people just never give up; they had no compassion. Some of them. Anyway, uh, I was not let. Uh, I at this point, the Pan Am medical director had arrived, and he wouldn't let me go to the hotel. He said oh, we have to keep you under observation for a few more days. So I believe I spent two more days at the hospital, and um, went back to the hotel. At that point. Uh, the, both the staff at the hotel and the Pan Am uh, people who were there realized that it was going to be difficult for me because they were immediately rushed out and try, tried to um, question me and they realized that this was going to be a problem for me. So somehow the staff said, okay, and they brought me back to the service entrance and uh, we all went upstairs into the hotel through the service elevator. And that's how I traveled through the service elevator uh, up and down for the next few days. And uh, I can remember getting to my room and thinking, oh my gosh, this looks like a funeral parlor 
there were so many flowers in my room. And uh, at, at one, and they kept arriving, and, and wow. more flowers kept arriving, and there was no place to put them. And I remember finally filling up the bidet in the bathroom and, with water, and it was full of flowers. Uh, so I went to meetings uh, uh, at the with the NTSB and um, the FAA and. Uh, of course, the Pan Am people, their team was there. I, I can remember them. The only thing I can remember them saying to me was, are you a nurse? And um, I said, no. And they said, um, do you have medical training? And I said, only what Pan Am gave me, uh, which is basic first aid, uh, really. Um, maybe slightly more than that. Uh, but... That was all, and finally, I I was able to. They were able to let me go down in the evening to the bar, and um, uh, where there was a lot of activity. And by then, the media had calmed down considerably, and I was able to go to the restaurant to eat instead of having a tray in my room, and. Um, a few days later, there was a uh, the, a church service was organized, and um, I remember us going in, out to a cathedral, and there were so many media there uh, that when they rushed the car, and I could, they said, "No, you can't get out here." So they made a plan and. Uh, they got the tallest men that were there from all of these groups and took me around to a side uh, and took the crew around to the side entrance. And I can being remember being lost in the middle of the sea of very tall men <laughs> as we walked into the cathedral and they sat on either side of me and behind me um, during the whole service. And um, and I, th I think that's when reality started to hit, and I realized the enormity of what had happened. You know, we were beginning to learn numbers and um, the fact that nobody on the, the KLM plane had survived and how many people had survived. Word was trickling in it from the other hospital and from the hospital I was had been in and about how many survivors there were. Um, but, um, what was going through your mind when you've, I, I was con still confused and I thought, um, why did, how could this happen? I, I understand accidents do happen. Um, I, I wasn't, sh we still weren't sure of the facts because we didn't have facts until much later f from the KLM group. Uh, um, until they had to give testimony, and they, we found out what had happened on board their aircraft. Um, uh, the pilots of the KLM plane were running out of duty time, and apparently that's when the captain just said, it's, it's now or never, and I guess they didn't want to spend another night at, in, um, uh, in Tenerife. 
Also, before we left the hospital, Carla and I were able to go to visit. Uh, and I asked the nurse, I said, there are people we haven't seen yet. And I know I was with them in the emergency room. And she said, oh, yes, there, there is a, um, uh, a, a, an area where we have them, um, uh, the, the, the burn victims. Um, and they're kept in a, a dimly lit area of the hospital. Well, the rooms were dimly lit. And, um, and it was very cool. Um, and so we did, they would let us go. And they got us all dressed up in, um, in gowns and masks and booties and caps. And uh, we recovered like mummies. And we did go and, um, and talk with uh, the other people that I had come across and some of them that I had worked on in the hospital. And especially this one woman with the gash in her head, I walked into a room and I heard this voice say, do you have my rings? And I walked over and it was a woman I had, it was the woman I had was working on it that had this gash in her head in that uh, room. And she was in the burn unit and um, I had taken her rings off and I said, I put them in my pocket and I will keep them for you because uh, we were taking the skin off her hands and um, and down the, the, the worst part of the skin removal was when you got to the nails, um, it, it wouldn't pull off and you had to cut the skin off oh my. Uh, around the nails. And I mean, it was just... Oh. So gruesome, and and that's when I started thinking I've done all this these terrible things, but I I I never thought about it at the time. You just do what's necessary, and um, somehow uh, the adrenaline and your training mm-hmm. kick in, and you don't think about what you're doing. Um, and so that's that's basically what I was left with trying to think and sort out for myself um, that, uh, you know, I had done uh, what I did and what others did was just our training setting in. Let's talk about the friendships that were formed and the bonds that mm-hmm. in this terrible tragedy. You mentioned one of the passengers that you would later friends with. You also mentioned some of your crew. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? Uh, yes, this woman that I had um, pulled out from uh, underneath the wing, she and I became lifelong friends, and she died about, well, I, I'm not sure how many years ago, within 10 years. Um, now, she was in her 60s at that point, and she had been recently married. Uh, um, her first husband had died, and um, this uh, man she met was a uh, very well-known rear admiral of the Second World War and a much decorated um, soldier or sailor. She was in the next room of mine to the hospital, and I can remember going and feeding her because the nurses were busy and they didn't have time to feed people, and um, she couldn't. uh, She had been so badly burned that she couldn't also feed herself. Um, and I would cut up her food and, and help feed her uh, when she had trouble eating. And we just became friends. And she lived in California. 
we had so much fun together, even though there was this enormous um, difference in age. I just felt very close to her. We had a lot of good times together. Uh, I can, uh, I remember at one point, I mean, she was a couple of years later, uh, maybe two years later, uh, her, she didn't have any children, but she had raised a nephew, and he was the um, the minister a minister at the uh, Presbyterian Church in Mount Kisco, New York. He had arranged for a meeting in the church, and Marti said, "You know, we, we're here to honor uh, the woman who brought my aunt home." I had to get up and give a little speech and. Um, I remember everybody applauding afterwards, and I was so surprised because I had never heard uh, or experienced applause in a church before. That was one pleasant side of of the the aftermath. Uh, And uh, as I said, I I enjoyed many, many years of of a wonderful friendship with this woman uh, until she died. And... Um, and that was the the main, um, that was the only real friendship I developed out of that. Although I did keep in touch and writing, calling and writing letters to, um, a few of the people, uh, that had been, um, at the burn center. And, um, and after that, a few years later, we lost touch. Uh, but I never lost touch with Beth and, um, um, anyway, uh, I have this wonderful, um, called the Good Samaritan Award, and um, it says for Dorothy Kelly, who through her life of courage and love has survived the question, Lord, who is my neighbor? From the people of the church, the Presbyterian Church of Mount Kisco, New York. That's among one of the... That's up there with several of the awards I received, probably my favorite. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Pan Am sent a 707 to pick up uh, the crew members and um, the media and uh, the, the all the people that were going back to the New York area. And the first thing I wanted to do, and we were to, we were, I was living uh, with my husband in New Hampshire at the time, and uh uh, we stayed, we were put up at a hotel in New York by Kennedy Airport. And the first thing I wanted to do was to see Captain Grubbs and see how he was doing. So they arranged uh, for uh, to take um, uh, me to the, the, I believe he was in a hospital in uh, New Jersey. I'm not sure about that. But um, I went to the hospital and saw him. And his family was there, and I found out that um, uh, he had had a granddaughter, and um, somewhere in her name is the name Dorothy. So that was also very endearing. Um, Now, Bob Bragg uh, kept in touch. Uh, Of course, my husband was also a Pan Am pilot. And um, so they knew each other, and he lived in New England as well. And we would uh, see each other every once in a while, but, um, you know, not very much socially. 
So I just kept in touch, and um, I kept in touch with Bragg, Bob Bragg, for many years. How did Tenerife change you? Well, it made me much more aware of how important our training was, first of all. It made me a lot less tolerant of passengers who only wanted a pretty face to serve them a drink or a meal. I I never bought into that. I always took the job seriously. Well, Dorothy, I want to thank you very much for sharing your stories. I know that talking about Tenerife is is difficult, and uh, I very much appreciate your time. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to see to the audience? I hope that uh, the remaining employees of Pan Am and friends of Pan Am still keep together. I belong to a a philanthropic group of former Pan Am flight attendants called World Wings, and there are chapters all over the world, and um, we get together uh, for each chapter locally for meetings and um, parties and uh, social gatherings, and um, we also collect money for charities and uh, have donated... uh, lot of money to different charities around the world. Um, so I, I'm very much a big part of, uh, I've always been a big part of World Wings. And uh, I just hope that uh, groups that um, you've become affiliated with, like the Pan Am Museum, uh, will continue to survive and um, have an interest in, in um, what was a Brown great breaking uh, airline from the from the get go, from the days that where they first uh, started out traveling um, in the Pacific and opening up routes in the Pacific and landing where there were no runways or airports, um, and the whole evolution of Pan Am was uh, worthy of notice. Thank you very much for sharing your story, Dorothy. I really appreciate your time. I know it was difficult to share some of your memories. I would like to uh, make an editorial comment to our listeners here and say that not all superheroes wear capes. And you, Dorothy, are a true hero. Truly, you are a hero. You were injured with a compound fracture in your arm and a head wound But that didn't stop you one bit. You worked tirelessly for three and a half hours after the crash as a triage nurse helping as many people as you could. That is true heroism. That is true bravery. You are a hero in my book, and I'm honored to be talking to you. Okay. Thank you, Tom, for your interest in Pan Am. We're going to conclude this special memorial episode with a recording from... April 26, 1977, at the memorial service on Tenerife for the 583 victims of this terrible tragedy.